This Wicked Chops podcast is brought to you by Amber Gaming, a platform with a plan. Visit www.ambergaming.com. Now tuned into the motherfucking greatest. Turn the music up in the headphones. Tim, you can go and brush your shoulder off, nigga. I got you. We're back. Another Wicked Chops podcast. We've taken a, a bit of a sabbatical. Uh, we have not posted anything in a month, but with the WSOP coming up, it's really time just to dive right back in. Joining me, Jay Greenspan. Jay, how you doing? Doing great, Chops. How are you? Uh, you know, no complaints on this end. And our guest for this part of the podcast. And I don't think you've ever actually been a podcast guest. You did this week in poker, but Maria Ho. Hi, guys. So, Maria, you're you're kind of the the hardest working woman in poker right now. You're all over the place. Where are you today? I am in Oklahoma City where it's 90 degrees. <laughs> That's not too bad. O- okay, so in OKC, are they do you just see nonstop thunder jerseys right now? Oh my God. Yes. It's just so huge right now. And, uh, there's a game tonight, but it's not, um, it's not a home game. So it's not quite as crazy or hectic, but it's basically all that anybody here can talk about. Are there a bunch of like five foot six, uh, white guys who all think they're Kevin Durant wearing Kevin Durant? (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like Jersey wearing and flag waving and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that's cool. They're almost like a soccer mentality there, how much they're behind their team or like a college atmosphere with that. It's uh, uh, it's pretty amazing. Did you a uh, quick sidetrack, I guess, before we get on to it? Jay, did you see the Kevin Durant MVP speech? That was the single nicest thing I've seen in professional sports in a long time. That was great. And Maria, did you hear about this? I did hear about it and I haven't seen it, but I guess he was just very emotional or he cried maybe or he cried and he was he just came across as very decent and humble and not what you would expect from a superstar in any sport or industry. It is uh, it's absolutely worth a uh, YouTube search. Kevin Durant MVP speech. Okay, I'll put that on my list. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jay, weren't you just kind of blown away by it? Yeah, there's something about, I mean, he was he was so deferential to his teammates, so appreciative of everything around, you know, to see somebody at that caliber being so genuinely appreciative of other people's contributions and it not seeming like it was lip service or something that they sort of have to say, um, you know, to see his teammates sort of tearing up over it was really, that was really something. It was great. Yeah. Maria, if you, um, not if, when you win a bracelet <laughs> this summer. Mm-hmm. And you give your uh, interview thanking people. Just thank yourself. Just <laughs> go the other go the other direction. Don't don't thank anybody that helped you get there. Just thank yourself. I'll, I'll be that person. Well, I'll do, I'll thank God and myself. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You got it. That's it. Those are only two people. <laughs> so uh, what's going on in uh, OKC and and Windstar, who you've worked with for a long time, right? Yes, I am in Oklahoma City actually shooting the commercial spot for the River Series, which is held at the Windstar Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. And uh, it's uh, it's just one of the best value series of the year. And I just don't know how many people really know that because, you know, people don't really think of poker, Oklahoma. They don't make that connection. But if you think about it, you know, all the Texas players come to Oklahoma right. to play since you can't play Texas Hold'em in Texas. 
figure that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's this year we're giving a million to the first place winner of the main event and it's all happening Labor Day weekend. So we have, you know, three flights, uh, three days of day ones, and then you can re-enter as many times per day. So lots of chances and uh, all the prelims start August 16th. So yeah, it's going to be a really good series again this year. The buy into that, Maria. It's 2,500 for the main event. With a million dollar first prize. Yes, it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, the, uh, those, those Oklahoma tribal casinos really crush it, bringing in the, the Dallas and just the, in general, Texas business. So uh, I can see, I can see where they can get to that, uh, to that million dollar. That's uh, that's insane though. That's huge. Yeah. It's a really, really nice price pool for the players here. So, uh, back to you traveling all over the place, nonstop all the time. Uh, you were in Los Angeles last week. It was last week mm-hmm. and filming some, uh, episodes with HBT with some new guest hosts. Uh, tell us about that. Who was it and how was it? Yeah, so I was just in L.A. filming um, the episodes with uh, our guest co-host Bruce Buffer and Jason Calacanis. A lot of fun. What is, uh, what, how is Jason on, uh, how is Jason on camera? Because Jason's an interesting guy. Yeah, so, you know, this is the first time I've met Jason, but I've seen him, you know, on some poker television shows. And he was just, you know, I could tell why he has, you know, he does a, a, a podcast, right? Right. His style of just talking, he just goes, goes, goes. You just know he's such an interesting person with so many things to say and so many things to talk about. So that was kind of his style and his flow. It was very much just like off the cuff, just whatever came to mind. He just, you know, he could, I feel like he could go on for hours, actually. I feel like we had to like stop him and be like, all right, that's good. Reel it back in a bit. But yeah, he had a lot to talk about for sure. Uh, Jay, are you familiar? You're familiar with Jason, right? I am, yeah. From the tech space, mm-hmm. have you ever watched his this week in startups? Yes, I have. Yeah, he's uh, I mean, he's just crazy smart, and he's uh, he's actually a lot of fun to work with. We've done uh, we did our this week in poker on his this weekend network, but yeah, he's uh, extremely opinionated and mm-hmm. uh, makes uh, makes good TV though. I mean, he's definitely like a, a make good TV guy. Yeah, yeah, I feel like usually. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, just, he's, a, he's a very energetic guy, one of those minds that, you know, just keeps moving where most of most of ours, you know, slow down here and there. His is just churning, churning, churning. Yeah, I feel like usually on the HPT broadcast, I'm kind of, you know, the mean one when it comes to critiquing the play and the players. But I mean, he was very opinionated on the play and the players as well. And how was, uh, how was working with Bruce? I, I imagine that was a, a total different uh, experience. Yeah, definitely a different vibe. I mean, I've known Bruce for years, but we've never worked together. But I've seen his UFC stuff. I mean, he's super high energy and and just kind of like crazy and just down for whatever. So he definitely did a little bit of that Bruce Buffer announcery voice right. with us, which was really fun. I mean, it, it really it felt like we were like MMA fighters for a second. Just like the way he would talk about poker is just not usually the way people, you know, it's not usually the same kind of energy that people talk about poker with. So it was really, really cool to get to work with him and, and have him bring that into the HBT broadcast. Please tell me you did a uh, your own version of It's It's Time. 
Oh my God. So I did, I didn't say like the it's time, but I kind of, I did like my own version of his voice and I don't know how that turned out. I feel like I got a couple eyebrow raises from people. So, I mean, I tried my best, but I had to like do the whole like deepen my voice thing. I don't know how that works out. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, uh, you've been now, you've been working with HBT. We're like going on two years now. Yeah, this is my um, second season. I did season nine with them, and we're now currently in season 10. How are you enjoying it? I am really, really enjoying it. Honestly, at at first, I was a little bit uh, hesitant and maybe a little intimidated by just the idea of being kind of a full-time commentator. It's not – I've definitely done commentating before, but you just don't realize how many things are actually running through your head when you play poker. And then having to, you know, verbalize it and and say all of those things out loud, it it gets a little daunting. But um, I honestly think my real problem now, though, is having too much to say. I was really worried in the beginning if I that I wouldn't have enough to say. Yeah. And now I just have, you know, problems cutting down kind of the strategy portion to, you know, to fit into the hand, basically. Yeah, that, I, I can see that be a challenge. You know, we've talked in the past about sometimes it's just a matter of reps, too, and, and how much, uh, you know, how much media in general or how much you just get used to talking on podcasts or on camera and mm-hmm. once you get enough under your belt, it just becomes a lot easier. Are you finding that to be the case? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Fred, so Fred Bevel, the co-host, I, we've had, we've known each other and we get along really great. And then when we came into the studio, I think once I felt more comfortable to just have my normal off-camera rapport with Fred, that actually helped a lot. I think we have really great chemistry and I think we bounce off each other really, really well. And so that's definitely made it a lot easier and much more comfortable. I think we've just kind of found our own place. You know, um, we don't really step over each other. We kind of know, you know, who's doing what. So that's really been a huge help is just having that kind of um, interaction with Fred. Sure. Jay, when you were doing some of the Tilt Academy stuff and trying to get uh, commentary out of these poker minds that you worked with did you find it really difficult uh getting the commentary out of them was um became a little bit of an art um and (laughs) i was a little bit of a you know we work with guys who are used to just posting in discussion forums and didn't you know and weren't used to talking to a large audience so doing a lot of females probably too (laughs) yes right if there was a pretty girl in the room it would be like you know uh yeah it could be difficult but yeah getting helping them craft an answer to the point where it was really succinct and really you know stuck to the main you know, to the main point of what they're trying to say, because poker players have this way of being so digressive, you know, like, because it's part of the game, you know, and then you've, well, in this situation, but there's 15% that he could have this, and, you know, all of, all of those things that you need to think of when you're playing at a high level don't really do well when you're trying to communicate a very, you know, the broader point. Um, So getting people around to that took some work, but I, I, I feel I got very, very good at that. At the end, at the end, yeah. yeah. So, what else? Uh, anything else going on with uh, on the HPT front? It looks like they launched a new venture, the HPT five hundred. Yeah, the HPT 500 is a really cool way for players in their local casinos to kind of play, um, you know, a league type 
type structure. And at the end of it, um, every season, they'll get to play a final table with all of the best players from, you know, the other uh, casinos. And then they end up winning. The winner of that will get a package to a lot of cool HPT events and, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, accommodations and other things. So it's kind of like a, a stepping stone, I think, for people who, you know, are just kind of playing in their local casino, but maybe want to play in more of a bigger stage and, and you know, like a televised type uh, poker event. So, yeah, it's like uh, HBT was the uh, for the average Joe when they launched. And this is almost uh, it's almost a way for you to graduate up to being an average Joe. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, a way for. Uh, no, it's cool, though. It's a, it's a way to make it more accessible and give people that even have, uh, I guess, less of a shot of getting on TV yet another shot of getting on TV, which really ultimately is every poker player's dream. Yeah, and I think it's really good for poker because I think we've seen the poker market get, you know, very oversaturated with, you know, some of the higher buy-ins. And so now everybody's kind of, you know, going back to the poker roots, I think, of just, you know, get, getting uh, players from the ground uh, level, people who are just starting out and people who are still kind of in that small buy-in realm and then giving them a shot in the big leagues for sure. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, looking at the buy-in, you got a $75 weekly event, a $200 monthly, and then a, a $500 quarterly. The $500 quarterly looks like where all the points come in or a lot of the points come in. So, uh, yeah, it's it's taking the, the mid-stakes, not down a notch, but again, just making it more accessible. Definitely. So before all of this, I want to say you were in Paris. You were in Europe, right? Was it Paris? Yes. I, in- w- I went to Paris for vacation and then Monte Carlo to play the EPT Grand Final. Whatever, just whatever. <laughs> whatever, it was fabulous. <laughs> uh, J- Jay, have you been to Paris? Yeah, it's my favorite place on the planet. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, you think, Maria? Because I, I, I took seven years of French. Um, it's not any secret that I'm not a fan of the French. Really? Uh, but but I hear outside of Paris, the rest of France is awesome, good people. But the Parisians tend to be. Uh, you know, a little snobby, a little anti-American. Did you get that vibe at all or no? Well, chops, je parle français un petit peu. <laughs> just, just some peu, just some peu. <laughs> um, I took French in high school for a few years, uh, but don't really remember anything. Yeah. Um, you know what? I didn't find, so I've actually been to France um, and Paris before with my family when I was kind of younger, like teenage age. So I definitely didn't appreciate Paris then. And, and back then I don't really remember, um, if they were rude or not to me because okay. I was American, but this time around, I have to say, I know I've heard from people that French people hate Americans and they're rude and they're snobby and this and that, but I actually surprisingly pleasantly surprised that I didn't really experience much of that, but I definitely can, I see why people would get that vibe for sure. There's obviously, you know, snobby people there. You, it's very, it's a little bit pretentious. I think their culture is very formal kind of. So, um, but I had a lot of fun and I thought everybody that I interacted with was super nice. Um, and honestly, like I had so much good food there. I can't even like, I just, yeah. Yeah. Maria for another, for the, uh, for the wicked chops food podcast, we could discuss our uh, (laughs) dining in Paris. That'll be but uh, just to, on this point, just real quickly, I think what a lot of people, um, Americans, think of as be, the rudeness in Paris is actually just an urban mindset. You know, I lived for a decade mm-hmm. in New York City. So it's not, I, I don't believe that they're actually rude. They're just, you work at a pace and sort of at a distance of people that, you know, you sort of have to when you live in a big, bustling city. 
So I, I don't, I don't, I didn't find him rude. I don't know, man. Like I've spent, I've never lived in New York, but I've spent a lot of time there professionally and, and practically lived there for about a year and a half uh, with, with the number of trips I've had. And of course, spent time in San Francisco, Los Angeles, all that. And even New Yorkers, I never found like rude or unaccommodating. Uh, you know, if anything, you know, friendly would keep doors open for you. It's always, uh, you know what? I should probably just shut up right now. Um, <laughs> uh, so I don't know if I necessarily agree with the urban, the urban point. I think it's just a more of maybe a cultural thing, but, um, well, you're losing all your French listeners right I, now. Josh, you know what? I, we've, uh, I've taken so many shots at the French over the years that <laughs> I, like we're, we kind of get it. We're all cool. Me and the French, but all right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, one thing I saw on Instagram though, was, uh, was the, the locks. What's up with the locks and can you lock a lock? Okay, so I had a super love bridge lock fail um, in Paris. So, yeah, there's that bridge that everybody puts a lock on and it's supposed to, you know, you throw the key into the river and it's like, love that lasts forever, blah, blah, blah. That's not why I did it. Just I did it for the picture, let's be honest. Um, But uh, I could not lock my lock for the life of me. (laughs) Like like, when I tried to take the key out, like it would just become unlocked. But finally... (laughs) finally got it to go but I read or I heard from somebody who I think posted on my Instagram picture they were like well did you know that these locks are weighing down the bridges in Paris and I'm like okay well that takes away the whole like I saw that (laughs) and that can't be that can't be true Jay did you do you don't strike strike me as a guy that's going to do the lock thing but are you familiar with this you're correct I'm not the guy who's going to do the lock thing (laughs) (laughs) did uh I can't imagine because it's a little if I remember the picture it's just one of those little locks right yeah, but we did ask um, we did ask a tour guide if they do actually. I mean, they must because they actually are starting to put locks on the other bridges and not just that specific one. But okay. they do. They have to be taking down some of the locks because they're there. It just won't be able to fit them all. So she did say that they do go and cut locks every now and then. And I'm like, I don't want mine to get cut. Yeah. <laughs> Blame. All right. Well, OK. So overall, though, thumbs up to Paris. Yes, for me at least. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Let's let's get into what the next uh, really six weeks are going to probably seven weeks going to dominate your your life, and that's the World Series of Poker. Yep. So, so I are, are you are you planning on basically camping out here for in Vegas for for the duration of the series? Yep. It's just going to be like basically the last three or four years for me. I've spent, you know, I, this is my sixth or seventh WSOP, but my fourth full WSOP. And by full, I mean, um, my schedule has about 35 events in it or wow. so. Um, so yeah, I'm flying straight from OKC to LA to unpack and then repack my life up to go to Vegas and, uh, you know, I'm renting a house this year again. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really ready to play some live poker. I've been in Vancouver playing online poker. I played scoop and, you know, I've had some decent success online in the last few months. And I feel like, you know, I'm ready to kind of transition back to, uh, where it all really began for me, which is live poker. Cool. Jay, you've, you've noticed something interesting about this, this schedule, uh, that, that, uh, I just found an interesting fact. Uh, what was that? Well, just looking at the total of the buy-ins, if you were to play the first 20 events, uh, you would be 88500 88, And to play the full slate minus the super high buy-ins, it would be, I think, 220. 
that is a lot of buy-ins. That's a, yeah. I mean, it's in, obviously impossible to play them all, but uh, right. You know, so how do you how do you go about budgeting for you know something that can be so bankroll draining? Um, you know, I. Yeah, it's definitely hard because every tournament, especially if you play all the games, they all look good. You know that the value is there regardless because this is the one tournament series that, you know, you have people coming in all over the world to play in. And so you know that it's going to get a lot of runners. So it's really hard to find a bad value tournament at the WSOP. Um, For me personally, I think the last few years budgeting wise, I've just I feel like I've always been really smart about my bankroll. And I think that's probably that's the biggest reason, at least that I attribute my success to and, and my consistency in poker to, um, I don't really play, uh, above or beyond my means. So I do sometimes will sell like small pieces. I mostly have, you know, a hundred percent of myself and everything, especially during the WSOP, but I will sell, you know, some smaller pieces or, you know, I kind of do a midway assessment usually like, like you said, you know, if I play the first, you know, 15 events and I'm bricking and I'm not doing well, then maybe I'll sell some action for my later events. But, um, I really like to, I really like to have as much as of myself as I can, but I also do a lot of swapping. So I think swapping percentages is a really great way. It is essentially budgeting and controlling, you know, your variance, because if you get to swap with some really good players, then that should definitely help your bottom line as well. And so I pretty much budget around the WSOP for the rest of my year to make sure that I, you know, have what I need to play the events I want to play and that I feel comfortable spending that kind of, uh, that money. Let me ask you a question about swapping. Do you have, does any of this get planned beforehand or is this all just the day of people you happen to see when you're, you know, when you're buying into an event or, you know, have you like planned the people that you're going to swap with and the events? I definitely plan. I definitely have, you know, three or four people that I have a swap with, you know, going into the WSOP and it'll just be across events we both play. But there's also definitely day of swaps, usually not on day ones, usually when you're deeper into the tournament, like on a day two or a day three, you will go and talk to somebody who has a similar stack as you or somebody that, you know, you think is good that also thinks you're good that will want to swap. And then you guys can go from there because once you're deeper in the tournament, you know, there's just a lot more money on the line that you know that you're guaranteed or to be playing for. So it's, it's kind of good to swap deeper in a tournament and people are usually more willing to swap because they kind of see where you're at and, and they feel like it's a, it's, it's going to be good for both of you guys. You had a, you'd mentioned that you feel like you've done a a good job on bankroll management and, you know, frankly, there's not a lot of poker players that can make that claim. (laughs) So, what like what in your background or or just how have you managed to discipline yourself that way well i think the biggest uh i think the biggest reason i am disciplined when it comes to bankroll management is because <laughs> is like the fear of failure in terms of just like having to prove my parents right essentially because sure. i think i've i've had it in my my parents have been in my ear for a long time, ever since I graduated college about, you know, how viable poker is as a profession and as a career and what am I doing and this and that. And I definitely don't want to go back to my parents with my tail between my legs being like, all right, I'm broke guys. Um, but I also think I come from, you know, it's weird because I think to be good at poker and to excel in poker, you have to be a big risk taker. 
um, you know, on the felt. But I feel like sometimes people kind of take that a step too much. And I think people who play poker really well actually end up being big risk takers in other parts of their life. And I think I just don't have those same kind of life leaks. I mean, sure, I like to spend money on a nice meal or maybe, you know, a nice handbag or something. But, you know, I'm not I'm not playing table games. I'm not, you know, at the strip club. I'm not buying bottles every day. So you're you're not at the strip club. I'm shocked. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think those the, that definitely weighs and factors into it a lot is I think people are just kind of all in in every part of their life and not just right. poker. And I think I'm, I'll be all in at the poker table and just just as like a small favorite and I'm happy to get the money in. But I'm not going to go and do that in, in other parts of my life. So, yeah, I can't remember ever seeing you in the pits. No, I like, don't get me wrong. I've been in the pits, but not, <laughs> but not the way that these people have been in the pits. Like I, I have a story of the most I've ever lost in blackjack, which I don't really need to be sharing, but it was just, it was a one time thing and it's not going to happen again. So. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what events on the schedule, the WSOP usually does a pretty good job of mixing up the schedule every year, adding something new or, or potential buzzworthy or, or gimmicky. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to Ty a lot about that on how, like gimmicks aren't a bad thing they actually generate good publicity what uh is there a standout event uh that's new to the schedule or something that you're really looking forward to this year well, it's not new to the schedule. It was last year was the first year I believe they did it. But obviously, Millionaire Maker, it's one of those things that you just said. It's it's kind of gimmicky, but I mean, it gets so much publicity, so much that we had so many players come out for it. And it is pretty cool, just the idea of, you know, you could play a WSOP event and walk away a millionaire. And it's it's definitely the, one of the most affordable buy-in levels at the World Series of Poker. Um so that for sure. And I like that they brought, you know, the 10K championship events back. I think yeah. it's obviously nice to have those 1500 stud high lows and 1500 Omaha's and things like that. But, you know, those are definitely elite events. The 10K's that, you know, it's really for the player. Right. No, that makes sense. The uh, one thing that we've uh, that we've been writing about or talking about is it particularly seems like this summer, this year, there's an awful lot of competition on the periphery of the WSOP. So you have uh, the Mid Stakes Poker Tour doing something at the Venetian. You've got Hollywood Poker doing something at uh, the M. Uh, WPT's doing something. Do you think that that's going to siphon anything away from the WSOP or just bring more people that are ultimately just going to come in and play bracelet events anyway? No, I don't think it's going to siphon anything from the WSOP turnout. Um, but I think what it will do is. I, I, and I didn't even realize this until recently until I started talking to some people that I just, you know, met at the tables. But there is a lot of people that just come in to watch. And, and you know, it's yeah. and, and something like a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred is is actually out of, you know, their buy in comfort level. And so these events are really great. Like I know people that are coming in just to play the Rio dailies um, right. during the World Series so that they could kind of be a part of the action. And also because they're really good value. And those are, you know, two hundred, three hundred dollar buy ins. So I feel like. Like this is just another it's just I think there's enough players for all of the different buy in levels and all the different action that's getting spread around. And I think it's a good thing. Okay, that's good. One thing that we were talking about before, uh, actually, right before the podcast, uh, we're exchanging some thoughts on on fantasy poker and who to draft and some sleepers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jay, are you doing any fantasy poker this year? I'm not. I haven't had the time to put together anything. 
Yeah, yeah and I, I kind of similarly to you, I feel really out of the loop. Fortunately, Maria has been helping. But uh, give me just like two sleepers, maybe people that nobody's thinking of, but if they're doing a WSOP fantasy draft, a uh, couple of names just to look for. Well, I don't, I don't know how much of a sleeper this person is, but I know his name is not as big as everybody else that's out there. But Calvin Anderson would be my pick hands down. I mean, if you look at his results online, he is one of the winningest online players. He's constantly in the top, you know, spot or the top three of, you know, the pocket fives rankings. And he just took down the scoop overall leaderboard, uh, which is counts all of the different games, all the mixed games, et cetera. And he's, and, and that's the thing is I think for these drafts, you need to pick someone who's going to be a beast in the no limit events, but also someone who plays all the other games and all the other games well, because those have smaller fields and there's a better chance uh, of doing well. Um, so he is for sure my top pick for that. Not a lot of people know him by name because, you know, he was much more of an online player, but he's right. been playing live a lot more in the last few years and he's had some really really, really good results too. So, and he also plays all the events from, from what I know. So he's, he's a really, really good pick. Um, and, and also my other one, it's not a sleeper, but you know, every year I think in these fantasy drafts, people are picking just the best no limit hold'em tournament player at the time, even though they're not playing the other games. And for, I mean, I don't, I can't see anybody else better right now than Oli Shemian. It's going to be his first WSOP. He just turned 21 and he's been on a tear in Europe and he's been on a tear online. He's really just unbeatable. I mean, he's like, he's basically Philbort status, except he's more unknown, you know? So I had no idea he just turned 21. I thought he was a couple of years older. Okay, wow. No, yeah. So I think he's a great pick. I mean, he doesn't play the other games, but for no limit, hold them hands down. I mean, if people are picking some just strictly no limit beasts, I think he's definitely on the top of that list. Interesting. All right, let's 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 dork out for a minute. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you're a big Game of Thrones fan. Jay, you watch Game of Thrones. Well, I'm an enormous Game of Thrones fan, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I and I've I've only watched five episodes. I have every intention to get back into it. Uh, too much other stuff going on. But uh, I've heard a lot of buzz about this season. Uh, how's the season stack up to the other ones? Well, I'm not. Compl- I've, so I've watched the first four or five episodes. So, Jay, if you have any spoilers from like the last two weeks, don't say anything because I haven't watched yet. But honestly, the season's been so good. I just I, I, so I never read any of the books, but I've heard that the books are really good as well. But, you know, there's just something about kind of seeing just everything that they've done with the production and, you know, just costumes and what just every single thing is so on point to me. And I just love kind of I feel really transported when I watch it. And I mean, I kind of love all the, you know, blood and guts and gore that they have going on. I don't I love seeing them feel okay with, you know, just killing off characters. And obviously that's, you know, kudos to the author when he wrote that, that he was willing to, you know, kill off some of the most important characters um, and people that you felt really connected to. Um, So I think that that's always a cool part of a show. Yeah, I think that it's this season has been like a reward for paying attention for paying attention to the previous seasons because it doesn't take any like previously it took some work just trying to keep up with who was who and you know what mm-hmm. what the plot developments were and and this season it's all just very comfortable and very clear um, about who's who and what the different you know antagonisms are and what the different goals of the characters are and you can just really enjoy 
you know, a spectacularly well put together production. The um, production values are incredible. They must spend a gazillion yes. dollars per episode. The acting, given the number of people that are in this, the number of characters, the acting is really superb top to bottom. You know, there's really not a weak link in the cast that's got like 40 regulars. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the story is now like all the different plots um, are moving along really, really nicely. I think it's just a, a real joy. You know, I don't think it doesn't have the same sort of like I don't get the same sort of payoff that I got from like the best of Mad Men or you know the best of um, Breaking Bad it doesn't like you know that intellectual sort of like satisfaction from it but as far as just like a enjoy enjoy the hell out of an hour of television it's right up there with anything I love it and and uh, speaking of enjoying the hell out of an hour of television last night's American Idol finale let's digress let's let's take it down a few intellectual levels here uh you know maria you, it was season three that you almost made it on or two yeah season three season three uh so you know you've got some history with it I, we've talked a lot about it um and i think similarly to me you've maybe tuned out recently but this ended up being a really solid season and last night's finale was really good with uh caleb and and gina uh have you watched either of these two this season yeah, I was watching down to, you know, maybe like the top eight or top six. I had watched all of the auditions and all that. I mean, to be honest, I was mainly watching for JLo because that girl is on point. Oh, my God. Like, seriously, everything she wears, her makeup, she's so flawless. I just I want to, like, eat her. She's so perfect. <laughs> um, but uh, sorry, I was digressing. But yeah, so going back to Gina and Caleb, I've seen them both sing a few times, uh, but they both have really powerful, like really strong voices. And I think it's really cool that it's down to them too. I think they're, but they're really different. I think the style and the way that they sing is, is very different, but I mean, Caleb is cool. Like Caleb just kind of reminds me of like an Adam Lambert. He just, he has that stage presence and his voice is just so big. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy, almost, uh, almost like Robert Plant type level, just huge voice and able to hit notes that I, I could, somebody could shoot me in my testicles and I wouldn't be able to hit the notes <laughs> that, that he hits. It's just, I feel like uh, that could be arranged. Just, yeah, I, you know, know there's really probably a lot that. of people that would like to do that. So I'm <laughs> sure it would not be hard to arrange. But, uh, okay. Well, on, on the note of uh, shooting me in the testicles, I think we should probably wrap this up, but uh, get back into, uh, get back into Windstar and uh, look forward to hanging out next week. Definitely. I can't wait. Okay. Thanks. Good luck, Maria. Thank you. Thanks. Welcome back to the Wicked Chops podcast. A special part two joining uh, Jay and myself on this one is Daniel Negreanu. Daniel, how you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How you doing? Good. Uh, even though it could be better, I think I whiffed on my first uh, fantasy pick in that ESPN draft that we just did, Daniel. Um but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people are doing their drafts. Uh, we we talked in our last segment with Maria Ho about some sleeper picks and some people to watch out for this year. Who do you have your eye on that could get really hot uh, going to the WSOP this year? So here's the issue we have. Yeah, uh, this is a podcast. Yep, I'm about to do a 25k buy-in. Yes, where my sleeper picks must remain sleepers. If I broadcast them to everyone in the world, guess what? They cease to be sleepers. Right. When is when is your draft? What day? So my sleeper picks are you know Howard Letterer, <laughs> Ferguson, and Andy Duke. Those are my sleeper picks. My draft is on the 26th. 
Okay, yeah, the slayer before that. So, uh, so, so maybe we'll, we'll keep that under wraps. But you brought well, up Howard Letterer, and Howard's been talking. There's those rumors that he might play or Chris might play this year. Do you think? Are you hearing that? Do you think he's going to really show up? I haven't heard that they're going to play. I mean, Chris is. I think Chris might have shaved his hair, okay, uh, and looks different and is probably very. He's always been like not very confrontational guy. So I don't think that he would be able to handle walking into the room. Uh, Howard, a little more smug and arrogant and condescending, and he can, you know, he doesn't. I don't. I think like he somehow delusionally thinks he didn't do anything wrong to some degree. So there's a much bigger chance of him. I still don't think that he is going to show up. But uh, you know, some people rumored that he would. Jay, you know, you uh, not that you guys were besties, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, you you know him at least a little bit, maybe more than than some others. Do you think he's got the hubris to show up and actually play this year? Well, I, I think after all of this, poker is really his life. You know, all the business stuff that he was involved in was secondary. I mean, he he, he really identified himself as a poker player. Um, so I think that like that incredible passion for it and to be recognized as as such as a poker player is so important to him that as soon as he feels that he can do it, he will. That's all, that's, you know, all the insight I feel I have in that. All right. Daniel, was, was Howard ever that good? Like, was he, what did you think of his game back when? He- uh, well, I mean, in the typical games that he played in, he was generally speaking, a losing player. Okay. Uh, um, you know, I know that he was being staked uh, and losing I, I won't say who because that guy's embarrassed for even staking him. But I, mean, I think in the early days when there was a Jay Botchman game who played seven card stud and he was obviously a sucker, um, you know, he did well and he did well against, you know, average fields. But when he played against, you know, some of the better players uh, like the Doyles and Chips and David Oppenheims and Phil Ivies and whatnot, obviously some of the greats, he was uh, generally very linear thinking, not very creative, very ABC which is great for, you know, lower limit games against average players, but against the high level guys, uh, you need a little more moxie and he was lacking the moxie. Got it. IMO. Can I ask it, can I digress here just for a second since we're, sure. we're on Daniel touched on something that I've always been curious about and I've never had the opportunity to ask. Um, I've talked to probably just about all the players who've played at the super high levels and I've never heard, with the exception of maybe Phil Ivey, I've never heard anyone describe another player at that game as a winning player. They're always describing each other as like long-term loser, as long-term losers, um, you know, and always in need of money. Is that something that you've encountered or do you like understand what that's about? Or is it just like a weird thing that I've run into? Well, it may be a thing that you've run into, but there is some truth to the idea that if you look, if you look into a Bellagio game and it's five-handed, and each one of them is a professional poker player, well, clearly, they each have very different opinions on each other's games, right? So one guy goes to the bathroom, and everyone's like, he's playing terrible. You know, uh, and, you know, the other guy leaves, and like, this guy sucks. So, you know, in order to play against the best, if you actually are a professional, you have to believe that some of the other pros are not nearly as good as they think they're, they are, which is a beautiful, uh, I, think, I think it's a beautiful thing, in that, you know, you've got all these guys who are sort of like, putting it out on the table, trying to prove who's the best with their own money or yeah. money they can. <laughs> <laughs> now that makes sense. So, uh, you know, we're coming up to the WSOP. We're, I think, uh, less than a week away now, a uh, week away. Uh, are there any changes or additions that have been made to the schedule this year that you're really excited about? 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, the World Series does a great job of listening to the players and what the players want. And we basically have like a two-tier system now for all the mixed games. There's a $1,500 buy-in as well as a 10K for each event. Obviously, you know, the 10Ks will likely see a drop in numbers compared to 5Ks, which is just fine. Uh, the misconception people have about, you know, numbers is this sort of anomaly that's been created with these two, three, 3,000 player fields. Right. 30 years of history at the World Series, the average field is about 110, 120 players. So, so those are, you know, those are great events. That's what like, the, you know, a lot of the top pros play mixed games want. And I think they're important for, and I think they're special as well. Uh, even more special than, for example, a 1K with 2,000 players. I find that winning the championship event in 10K stud, you know, holds a little more weight to it. And also the dealer's choice event is really, really a fun idea. I think that's going to really catch on. The only thing I wish they would have done is made it a little higher buy-in. It's a 1500. I think that would have been a good spot for a 2500. Okay. And then uh, the, the, the 10 million guaranteed a first in the main event. Are, are you expecting this to, to boost the main event numbers like I am, or do you think it's not going to ultimately have that much of an impact outside of maybe some media buzz? I don't have a strong opinion either way, and I don't think that there's many people I know that'll be like, "Oh, it's ten million for first. In that case, I'll play." Right. Um, I don't know that that there are really a lot of people like that. I think mostly it's a case of creating buzz. Jay, what do you think? H- having uh, having looked at it maybe from afar. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't see it. You know, I don't. I don't think there are many people who are saying, "Oh, I can win ten million instead of eight point five. You know, now I'm going to play." It's hard to see that as a real motivating factor. It feels like it's. You know, may get a tiny bit of buzz this year, but, you know, probably very minimal. And then next year back to, you know, trying to find something else. You know, I don't think there's any long-term value in it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I think it's a great media headline. It's something that if you're uh, average Joe writer at the AP or USA, Today, it's something, you know, they got to deal with USA Today, but it's something that you can glop onto and, and it makes a good headline, but yeah, we'll just, uh, we'll see. I, I'm just curious in general, how this year's main event numbers with some increased online poker activity in the U S although not much. And, and with this $10 million guarantee, if we're going to see, is it an, is it a flat line? Is it an uptick of 20 people? Or are we going to see an, a couple of hundred people end up showing up? Uh, it's nothing else. I think it's a, it's a storyline to watch this year. Um, somewhat to that point, Daniel, there's been, and we talked about this in our, uh, our previous podcast with Maria, there's a lot of increased competition around the WSOP this year. You've got WPT regional having an event, uh, that that's during the same time as the WSOP, uh, mid stakes poker tour at Venetian Hollywood poker at the M. Do you, do you still feel like the WSOP is as important to the poker community as it has been the previous 10 years? Even more so if possible. Okay. Um, I think there, you know, there's sort of been a lull ever since black Friday, the one stagnant thing that we have in the United States of America that's continued to thrive is the world series. Numbers are down for WPTs across the board for the most part and and tournaments across the United States. As far as the other events, the competition, I don't think is a bad thing. It just shows that there's a market for it. And, uh, it's not going to affect, I don't think it has any effect on the numbers of people who enter WSOP events. It just gives the little guy a chance to play some smaller stuff, you know, at different venues. So I don't think, I think it's just a good thing to create this big poker festival in Las Vegas with the world series of poker being the pinnacle. And yeah. I can, I can tell you from previous years, having played, you know, not having a bankroll to play in a lot of WSOP events, when you're at like the Venetian deep stacks, you can find yourself sitting next to, 
you know, pros have gotten substantial TV time. You know, by the end of the uh, WSOP, there are people looking to play 501Ks whenever they can. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. The one thing I, I could actually see the, the big spillover uh, happening with is uh, just spectator in attendance, where you have these people going to all these now side events at all these other casinos, uh, other tournaments. Uh, that don't have the bankroll to even play a 1500 or a 2500 WSOP event, but coming in uh, and and just uh, filling in and, and adding to a lot of the spectacle uh, that really makes the World Series of Poker exciting. I could definitely see that happen. It's so, worth it's worth remembering, I think, for all of us here that like the 98 percent of people who play poker winning a thousand dollars in a night would be an outrageously large take. You know, that'd be like the largest of their career still. So, you know, being able to play in events that are two, three hundred where they can just comfortably fit into their, you know, into their normal holiday budgeting is really important. Yeah. So, Daniel, you've been uh, you've been traveling all over the place lately. Have you had uh, have you been able to keep up with this season's Game of Thrones? I have been traveling. I don't remember traveling because I've been home for a while. But uh, yes, either way, I would be following it because i have a sling box and i'm up to date on game of thrones okay so uh jay has uh jay's also kind of a junkie how do you feel like this season is stacking up compared to the last couple seasons i think it's been really good i've you know generally with the seasons i usually wait a couple episodes and watch them together or sometimes watch like four or five this one i've just watched them you know when they've come on and pretty much live because i've been in anticipation just looking forward to seeing the next one i think it's been a really good season overall Jay, uh, what what stood out uh, the most to you about the season? Just the overall competence of it. Just the it's just the high level that it's operating at right now. I mean, you know, at this point, you're almost ready for the big, big shocks to come. You know, you don't assume that any character is going to be around. You know, for an episode or two. Any, you know, they could go at any time. But it's just the mastery with which it's done. You know, just so well written and edited and acted. It's just you know, just sort of a joy. What uh? What else are you uh? What else are you watching or consuming going into the World Series of Poker, Daniel? Anything that uh, aside from the Rocky movies, maybe that you're going to use just to either pump you up, get focused, or enjoy? Well, last I mean, I've, I'm I'm always a Survivor guy, so I'm always going to watch that and keep up to date with that. And the finale is coming up this Wednesday. Uh, last night uh, we did uh, you know like a seven episode, uh, sixty minutes marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up with what's going on. Actually, I watched 60 Minutes, and there was one episode where they were talking about people owning drones, personal yep. drones, and I bought one because it looked like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing with it, but I got a drone on the way. <laughs> Did you watch this last week about uh, Iran? And, no, I'm uh, behind a few episodes still. Okay, yeah. yeah. This, the last couple of weeks have actually been pretty sad. 60 Minutes is a staple. Uh, on our end on the survivor side how did you think the poker player that garrett uh adelstein did i know he was out early but uh did he just completely misplay uh his strategy he was out he was like the second episode out what did you think well i remember before he went on i read an article on poker news where he talked about watching you know putting in two thousand hours of prep work and really being prepared so i thought wow this guy's gonna be good Uh and i watched the first episode and i was i was shocked and embarrassed for this man he uh, (laughs) When you're a big, strong guy, right? Right. To go out early is like almost impossible. Right. He would have actually just went on the island and said nothing, like never spoke a word, just said, me, Garrett, me, pull carts. <laughs> you know, he would have done much better because the key to that game in the beginning is you want to maintain your muscle because you need to win challenges. Right. Um, but he did such a horrible job of strategy where 
people were trying to talk privately. He's like, no, 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 none of that. He was being controlling. He was being irritable. He was being, uh, you know, people were, they didn't love, he wasn't endearing to the people in his own trot. And it's really easy for a guy with his talents to get deep. So to get knocked out with an idol in your pocket. Right. It's just mind-bogglingly horrible. Like, Is it like one of the worst performances anyone's oh yeah. ever had on that show? It has to be. No, absolutely. You know, what? I think, you know, he said that he didn't expect it to be the way it was. Like, the guy's a big guy, right? He's got right. a lot of muscle. And one of the things, I don't know if people don't work out, if you look like that, you got to eat a lot. You know, your body's used to, like, eating a lot. So I don't know that he prepared his body right because he seemed like – uh, hungry all the time. And, right. you know, you, you want to have a little bit of body fat. I know those from Boston Rob. He told me you want to actually have a little extra there so that it burns away. And he didn't have any. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like big on his body. But in terms of strategy, like it was just not well thought out. His idea was to have open forum discussions, which sounds nice and cute in theory, but it's like, people are like, dude, this ain't Survivor. That's not how the game is played. Right. Just so it, it's possible. It, it's actually really possible that John Robert played the game better than Garrett. He did, even though, you know, that, it's pretty embarrassing how bad the two poker players have played on that game. Because JRB, before he went on the show, because they asked me to do the show. Right, I remember that. I gave him three pieces of advice. I gave JRB because he asked me before I left. He knew I was a fan of the show. I gave him three pieces of advice. On the very first episode, he broke all three. You know, I told him, <laughs> A, make sure the women like you because they're very valuable and useful. Uh, number two, don't speak loudly in open areas. And number three, just shut up, Mushu. Don't call out. Shut it. <laughs> don't call people out on the very first episode he was in the middle of the water talking about how he's going to tap this one girl in the butt <laughs> and how uh you know he, the, the women hated him and he ended up calling out the eventual winner saying you know what you seem like the smart guy like the, and so yeah he played pretty bad <laughs> would you uh would you consider ever going on it now yeah one of the things to be on the show actually what held him back is you have to be a u.s citizen oh so uh, I'm working on that. I've got a green card, and uh, I'm looking at about another year before I'm going to get my citizenship, I think. Great. Well, uh, hopefully, because uh, particularly as such a student of the show, as, uh, as we know that you are, that would, be, uh, that would be a fun one to watch. So, uh, Daniel, good luck at the series. We'll see you next week, and uh, thank you for taking the time on the podcast. Oh, no worries, guys. Cool. Talk to you. Take Bye. care. See ya. <laughs> 